Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. There was a day in Rome when the most powerful man in the world ruled. Uh, He was devoted to building his kingdom, and the world had never seen anything like it. Uh, The kingdom stretched north all the way to England. It stretched south all the way to Africa. It stretched east all the way to Asia. He literally ruled the known world. Uh, He ruled the nations. He ruled the rulers of the nations. They all bowed down to him. He was the king of kings. It was his kingdom. He was the most powerful man who had ever lived, and he was devoted to expanding his power. His army was so strong It was unchallenged. The world was living in the midst of what became known as the Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome. It wasn't that everyone uh, wanted to be ruled by Rome, but his army was so strong that no one could challenge it. No one was a threat to it. He was the power. He alone wore the crown and he was devoted to extending his glory. His name was Caesar Augustus. By the end of this man's life, people literally worshipped him. They bowed down and worshipped Caesar Augustus. Think about that. He built the kingdom and the power and the glory of Rome like no one had ever done for any nation in the history of the world. Everywhere he looked, he could say, my kingdom, my power, my glory. And he was right. It was a bloody kingdom. Uh, It was a brutal power. It was a self-worshipping glory, but it was very impressive. There had never been or has ever been anything like it. And then we're told by an ancient historian that one day Caesar had an idea. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. All the world would be taxed. Caesar at this time was around 60 years old and perhaps no human being before or after ever held such dominant power so tightly for so long. And one day Caesar said to himself, I want everyone to know how large my kingdom is. I want more money to extend my power, to reflect my glory. And so this king just lifted a finger just said a word, and the whole world scrambled, each to his own village, to obey the word of the king. Then Luke tells us what happens next, because now things start to get real interesting. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it like this, this man, this king, this absolute monarch lifts his finger in Rome and 1,500 miles away in an obscure province, a poverty-stricken couple undertakes a hazardous journey, all at the whim of the king. Only notice the result. A child is born in an obscure little town that Caesar had never heard of that just happens to be mentioned in an ancient hidden prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. But you, Bethlehem, out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Caesar lifts a finger, says a single word, and a little baby named Jesus is born in a little town called Bethlehem. And the question I have is, what king is at work here, really? Whose will is actually being done? Whose kingdom is it really? It turns out that this story is really the tale of two cities. Uh, Rome is one of them, and there's one kind of kingdom and power and glory there, and it's very impressive. We see that kind of kingdom all around us. People are engaged in an insane scramble to acquire that kind of kingdom and that kind of power and that kind of glory. And then there's Bethlehem. There's another kind of kingdom. The money and the soldiers and the palaces and the title and the wealth, those are all in Rome. Bethlehem was just stables and mangers and donkeys and shepherds. But I wanna tell you, the angels were not singing in Rome. They were singing in Bethlehem. Caesar, Caesar thought his throne in Rome was as secure as any throne could be. And I suppose from a human perspective, Caesar was right. I suppose that's about as secure as a throne can get. But what he didn't know was that the real kingdom was lying in a manger in Bethlehem. That's where the real kingdom was. You see, human beings have a kingdom problem. We all do. We think it's about my kingdom. It's about my power. It's about my glory. And this is what Jesus said. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, this is just truth. It's not even a command. It's just the way things are in the real kingdom. And so the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray ends with this. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, you, you'll notice in some translations in scripture, this is actually in a footnote. It's not in some of the ancient manuscripts, uh, but these words were used. They were the practice of the church within the first century of Jesus. And almost certainly his prayer ended with these words or words very much like them, because we have a kingdom problem, we human beings. I wanna build my little kingdom, make my little family, my work, my friends into a little kingdom under my control. I want my life to be about my agenda, to serve me. I wanna be in charge. You know, some people are uh, bold and obvious about this and some people are sneaky and subtle, but everyone has a kingdom problem. You know, I walk into work and I see my projects being done things being run my way, people doing what I want them to do, tasks that I've assigned being carried out. What does it mean? It means I'm in charge. It means it's my little kingdom. I go into my kid's room. The beds are made just as I prescribed. Chores are being done just as I commanded. What does it mean? It means I'm in charge. It's my little kingdom. 
I walk in the door at the end of the day and my slippers are laid out by the best seat in the house and ice beverage is waiting, Sport Center is on the TV, the iPad is on the end table for me to read whatever I want, my dinner is on the stove. What does it mean? It means I walked into the wrong house. <laughs> it's someone else's kingdom, it's not my house. You see, this is just the truth about us. Some of us are obvious and bold, some of us are sneaky and subtle, but we, we're all kingdom builders. My agenda, my comfort, my money, my success, my lifestyle, my achievement, my career, my opportunities, my security. But the day is going to come when I'm gonna learn the truth about what kingdom is ultimately in control, about who it is that lifts a finger and says a word and the world turns upside down. And he doesn't live in Rome, and he doesn't live in Washington, and he doesn't live on Wall Street, and he doesn't live in Hollywood. There is a kingdom at work in this world, and it may not be particularly visible. Uh, it may not look really impressive sometimes. You may wonder from time to time whether or not you can really trust it, but you can. And so Jesus teaches us in this marvelous prayer to end it by praying, your kingdom, not my kingdom, and you know, in these words, we surrender. Remember how this prayer started? Your kingdom come, your will be done, not mine. God, use me. Remember how this uh, prayer started? Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done, not mine. God, use me. I'm gonna give up trying to construct a life around the pursuit of my agenda. God, use me. I will give, I will serve. And every time I forget and go into the kingdom building business, I'll come back to you and I'll repent and I'll pray again, your kingdom, not mine. Use me, I'll serve, I'll give. So let me ask you, where do you need to surrender today? Where have you been trying to uh, build up a throne? Where are you trying to construct your little kingdom? Do you have any secret sins that you're clinging to you? Uh, do you have any grudges that you won't let go of? This is the time to surrender right now. This is your time to surrender and say, God, it's your kingdom. You know, I wonder how the world would have been different if Caesar would have somehow found his way to Bethlehem, at least in his heart, and knelt down on the ground near the manger and surrendered to the king. Well, this is your time. You can do that. I want to do something a little different right now. I want to give you a few moments to pray, and I want to encourage you to just take a time and, and to make God the, the unobstructed, unchallenged king of your life. And anything that needs to be surrendered, you surrender it right now. You just tell God, your kingdom. Just take a few moments and pray and then we'll continue the message.
So Jesus said, when you pray to pray, it's your kingdom, God. It's not my kingdom. You reign, not me. It's your agenda, not mine. It's your kingdom. And then he said, God, it's your power. Let me ask you a question. Could you use a little power today? Do you have a challenge at work? Is there any part of this world you're concerned over that you want some of God's power to flow to? Do you have a need with someone you love? Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a parent. Do you have a burden or a, a concern or a worry or a fear? It's God's power. We're not made to live under our own power, but we have a hard time believing that God's power really is available to us. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, it's your power, God, and we need to ask him for it. I wanna show you something from the book of Acts in the New Testament. This is a story about how believers a long time ago would ask God for power, but had a really hard time thinking that he would really make it available. Acts 12 is also the tale of two cities, the story of two kings. Uh, one of them is King Herod. Uh, this is not, same, not the same Herod who tried to have Jesus killed as a baby. This is another Herod. Uh, but he had James, the brother of John, killed, and he saw that this pleased many of the people, and so he decided to have Peter executed as well. This is Acts 12.4. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. So Peter is now being guarded by 16 prison guards. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The writer says that they were not just praying, but earnestly praying. This wasn't a half-hearted afterthought. They were pouring out their hearts. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Now imagine being Peter. You're in prison, waiting to die. You're sound asleep and like whack. Like you heard of touched by an angel. angel. Well, <laughs> Peter was like whacked by an angel. Uh, it was one of those high testosterone cherubim that comes to Peter. Get up, he says. Now look at verse 8. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. In other words, Peter doesn't even believe that God's power is really at work here, even though he was a witness to the resurrection and Pentecost. He's thinking this is a dream. Verse 10, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had, been, had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and the servant named Rhonda came to answer the door. 
When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Uh, now get this picture here. Peter is an escaped convict. He would be the object of a manhunt as soon as, he, as, soon as his escape was discovered. Uh, he's a fugitive, desperately searching for a safe hiding place, and the church is praying for his safety. Like he knocks on the door and this servant named Rhonda comes to answer it. Who is it? Peter, he says. And you think she might open the door and let him in because he needs to get off the streets. But she's so excited, she leaves him at the door to go tell everyone that their prayers are answered while he's still standing outside and there may be Roman soldiers who could see him and put him back in prison. All right, verse 15. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be an angel. <laughs> Don't be silly, they say. Peter is in prison. That's the whole point of this meeting. We're trying to get God to do something about Peter being in prison. And I wonder what went through Peter's mind. It says in verse 16, he just stood there and he just kept standing there knocking on the door. Rhonda comes, Rhonda goes. People say it's not him. Peter's just standing there knocking. And then the text says, but Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Like, we were praying for God to let Peter out of prison, and God let Peter out of prison. This is unbelievable. They prayed and asked God to answer their prayer, and God answered their prayer, and they were shocked. Like, they couldn't believe it. And you know what? I have the same problem. I live as if I'm restricted to my own little power. This is embarrassing because I've been a follower of Christ for a really long time, but there are so many times when I carry burdens and I do it under my own power. And then I get more burdened by anxiousness or preoccupation. I mean, it's a humbling thing after this many years of walking with Christ and being in the faith. But one of my primary goals is just to cut the lag time between when I'm challenged and when I ask God for power, to just like cut the lag time. Because when I go to God, I get strength. I may not always get a dramatic answer like this, but I do get strength and I get wisdom and I get creativity and I get comfort. But way too often, I just forget to ask God for help. I mean, I could be working on a message where I'm gonna teach people about asking God for power and I'm trying to do it all under my own power. So I wanna ask you to take some time just to pray earnestly for God's power to be revealed, to be realized in your life and in a specific situation in your life. Just ask God to show his power in an area of your life where it's most needed. Maybe you're in kind of a prison today, a prison of guilt or uh, regret or temptation and you need to be free. Maybe there's a sin that you need to be freed from and you need God's power to do that. Maybe you face a parenting challenge or a relational difficulty. Uh, maybe it's a financial burden. Maybe you're concerned about uh, some part of the world that desperately needs God's power. Well, for the next few moments, I wanna ask you to do what the early church did. Earnestly pray for God's power. Just take a moment right now to pray and then we'll come back to the message.
All right, so Jesus said, remember to pray your kingdom, God, and surrender. He said, remember to pray it's your power, God, and earnestly pray for God's power. And then he said, remember to pray it's your glory, God, and worship. And now you're gonna have an opportunity to do the most important thing that you will do all week. Like whoever you are and whatever you do, you're gonna have the opportunity to glorify God's name. You and I are gonna have the opportunity to proclaim his goodness and his greatness with all of the heart and soul and strength that we can. For God is the most glorious and wonderful being in this universe. Dallas Willard has written a kind of paraphrase of this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in his book, Divine Conspiracy. Uh, he writes about how this prayer has transformed uh, his living. His life has been transformed by this prayer. And this is what he writes. There are many nights when I would awaken at two o'clock and spend an hour of delight before God, just dwelling in one or more phrases of this prayer. And by the way, it was from Dallas Willard that I learned to take one phrase or one thought at a time from scripture and just live with it. You know, like our father who is always near, like not our father in heaven, some remote place far, far away, like our father who is as close as the air I breathe, who is all around me. And just repeat that over and over and just live with that all day long. May your name be treasured and loved. May people beginning with me come to really see and believe how surely good and wonderful you are. Uh, his translation of this last part of this prayer goes like this. Because you are the one in charge, you have all the power, and the glory too is all yours forever, which is just the way we want it to be. He writes, just the way we want it is not a bad phrase for amen. And then he writes, what is needed at the end of this great prayer is the ringing affirmation of the goodness of God in God's world. And if your nerves can take it, you might occasionally try whooping. <laughs> I imagine God himself will not mind. You know, I tried to picture that, uh, what that would be like, you know, in, or what that would sound like in the church where I grew up, you know, a bunch of uh, expressionless Baptists praying, you know, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, whoopee. <laughs> uh, I had a hard, hard time picturing it. Uh, but I'll tell you something, we have to do something to get these words off spiritual autopilot. I mean, we have to find the words and the thoughts. We have to use our bodies and our minds and the arts and every gift that God gives us to enter into the sheer goodness that's expressed through this transforming prayer. And although we live in uh, Rome or Pleasanton or Chicago or Connecticut, wherever the kingdoms are that we struggle with, it's his kingdom and it's his power and it's his glory. We started our study of this great prayer with the opening line, our Father, who is all around us, hallowed be your name. May your name be treasured. And I just, wanted, I just wanna think with you about this for a moment. One day, his name will be treasured by everyone. The writers of scripture have a lot to say about his name. Luke tells us that the life of the man named Jesus was ended as it began by a decree from Caesar, crucify him. 
Now, Caesar didn't make this decree personally. It was made by one of his lower level bureaucrats, but it was done in Caesar's name by Caesar's soldiers to protect Caesar's glory, to protect Caesar's kingdom through Caesar's power because all rival kings must be killed. And so Luke, the historian, tells us that Jesus's life began where Caesar decreed in Bethlehem and Jesus's life ended where Caesar decreed at Calvary. But here's the question, whose will was being done really? Was it really Caesar at the end of the day? Paul says that it was another king that chose, that it was Jesus who chose Calvary. He says that Jesus, being in the very nature of God, humbled himself and was born in Bethlehem. And he walked this earth, the most glorious life any human being ever lived, and he became obedient in death, even death on the cross. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the kingdom or the power or the glory. Therefore, God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, the name that will one day be hallowed. For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And let me ask you, how much territory does that not take into account? In our day, his name is not hallowed. It's used by one human being to curse another. It's ignored or abused. It's used to profane. But one day, the king will lift his finger and a whole lot of thrones that seem real secure will come down. How many knees will bow? Every knee. Think about that. I mean, just picture that scene. Like all humanity Every creature who ever lived from Adam until the very end will bow in acknowledgement of his final supremacy, his kingdom, his power, his glory. Think about that. Like every president who ever lived, every CEO who ever led a company, every movie star who ever graced the screen, every billionaire who ever made a fortune will be on bended knee. Their tongues will confess. People we know and read about now who sit on thrones in our day, like whatever their current beliefs are now, whether they're followers or not, they will bow. Oprah will be on bended knee before him one day, and Joe Biden and Donald Trump and Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Tiger Woods, knees that did not do much bending on this earth will bend in that day. Napoleon and Adolf Hitler will bend on that day. Joseph Stalin will bend a knee on that day. Caesar Augustus, who sent out a decree that the whole world should be taxed, will come before this Jesus who entered the world on his watch, born to humble parents in a dairy stable in an obscure village in an oppressed country he never thought about passing through. Caesar will bow and Herod who put out the word that he was looking for this child who gladly would have run, run him through with a sword, who did kill many other babies with the hopes of killing this one, will find out that death never really was a match for this man. Herod will bow. Pontius Pilate, who didn't really want to do something wrong, but he didn't really want to do something right either, will find that the day comes when you cannot wash your hands and look the other way anymore, and Pontius Pilate will bend the knee. And all the characters we've ever read about, Pharaoh and Goliath and Jezebel and Judas Iscariot, they will bend a knee. They will bow their heads. People who went through their whole life being bowed to will become the bowers that day. 
And there will also be others. Billy Graham will bow down and Mother Teresa and Moses and Abraham and Ruth and Esther and Peter and Paul and everyone you've ever known. The person you live next door to, the person who sits closest to you at work, the person who sits next to you right now, and your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters, you know, some knees will bow under duress. They will bow grudgingly or resentfully and stiffly. Some knees will bow in adoration and they will express hearts that are overwhelmed with love and admiration and joy for God's sheer goodness. But one day or another, the day is coming. As surely as this day came, the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And this is our day. This is our moment. We don't have to wait. We can actually start practicing. This is our chance to live and to love and to cherish and to hallow the name of our Savior. For there is no other name on earth given by which man can be saved. For God has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus right now, where you are, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess your kingdom, God, your power, God, your glory, God. Will you tell him now? Will you confess with all of your strength and your heart and your soul right now? Michaela is going to lead us in a closing song. And let's just hallow, glorify God's name in our hearts and in our minds right now. And you may want to bow your knee for practice. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.